I watched Mary J. Blige's documentary a couple of weeks ago, and there's a, there's a quote she says, I didn't know I was me. And I thought, that is so cute and so true. When I was a kid, I didn't know I was me, like the me I am today. Mm. And so for people listening, sometimes you don't know that you're you, that you're powerful, that you're that you're loved, that you're worthy, mm-hmm. that there's purpose in your soul. There's purpose that, that resides there. I understand that, but it's worth the journey if you allow someone to help you meet the real you that you were always supposed to be. Hello, and welcome back to another week here on the Hidden World Podcast. I'm your host, Whitney Logan. And today, my guest is the luminous Tasha Hunter. Tasha is a licensed clinical social worker, host of the podcast When We Speak, and author of a stunning and courageous memoir, What Children Remember. It was such an honor to speak with Tasha on this podcast. I walked away from our conversation thinking about how lucky we are to have a woman like Tasha in this world. After listening to this conversation, please consider sharing it with anyone you know who might benefit from her relentless hope and careful guidance through the choppy waters of childhood trauma. Welcome to this week's episode of The Hidden World. Thank you for having this conversation with me and thank you for writing this book. Mm. I you know, at times it was quite hard to read Mm -hmm. because it's so painful. Yes. And I wanted to reach into the book and like rescue. Yeah. You know, it was, I mean, I cried a lot and then had ugly, happy tears at the end. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thank you. Yeah. And I kept thinking this should be required reading. It's hard to read. It is. It, it should still be required. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what level of what age level is appropriate. <laughs> I, I think um, when I thought about the book, I thought this would be perfect for for young kids on their way to college. You know, leaving home, often leaving their abusive environments. Yeah, age is, is typically when the onset of like mental illness is occurring early 20s, you know, yeah. um, 18, 19, 20. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and I also thought about, you know, if this book had landed in your own lap when you were end of high school, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. what kind of bridge it could have helped you build 
Yeah. It would have told me to keep going. Yeah. Don't stop. Yeah, life was hell, but don't don't stop. Just just keep going, you know? Yes. And at the very end of the book, when I when I closed it, I thought to myself, okay, this feels like a love letter to mm -hmm. to two people. One, your younger self. And two, anybody who who experiences that kind of pain or abuse um, or isolation, alienation from basic needs for belonging and love. Yeah. It, it really is. It's a love letter to younger Tasha because for so long I didn't feel loved. And I just thought for sure, certainly God is punishing me for something. And now looking back, I'm just so proud of her for still being here, right? I'm, I'm proud of myself. Like I got through it and it was hard. It was really hard. Um, and I really did envision women all over the world who have gone through these really insurmountable challenges, experiences, right? Deep, deep, deep trauma. And, and it's like, I just wanted them to know your life is meaningful. Your life has purpose. Keep living. It's okay because eventually you will have people in your life that know how to love you well. You will have people in your life who are safe. And so not only do I have that in my life, but I am that for so many people. I'm their safe place. Oh, yeah. I could feel that. Mm -hmm. I, I, I saw how you became your own safe place, too. Yeah. Can you tell me how you understand how you did that or how you understand your own healing? It's been, Whitney, it's been a long journey. And I couldn't have gotten to the place of being my own safe person, my own safe place, being at home within myself without therapy. And because through therapy, I was able to name, really my therapist named it for me. <laughs> you have PTSD. The experiences that happen to you, those aren't, that didn't happen to define you. They happen, you didn't cause it, it's not your fault. My therapist was the first person to say that to me. Wow. And how many of us go through life and we don't have a person in our life to say <laughs> all of those things really in my, in my heart, I just felt so much love and protection in that therapist. You know, she put her hand on my hand and just said, honey, none of this was on you. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh my God, 
that was so profound. And then it's been a, a much longer journey, just really defining who am I? Okay, yeah, the trauma happened, but who am I? Because I'm, I'm not my trauma. And really dismantling, this is what I was taught. This is how I was treated. But what do I believe about me? Wow. And that really is a lifelong journey. It's not done yet. My healing will continue, right? Mm-hmm. Me saying, who, who am I? You know, because sometimes those old beliefs they, they pop up. Oh yeah. Nobody loves you. You're not important. You know, why did, why are you even a therapist? It doesn't matter. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, right. That's a lie. <laughs> so it's, it's really a lifelong journey of healing. And it's a journey Whitney, that has to be, that will be intentional. It's an everyday choice. It's an everyday practice. Yeah. Why did you write this when you wrote it and for who? Yeah, that's a, an excellent question. I wrote the book because for years I had so much shame about my experiences. Being a Black woman, and I remember uh, years ago when I attempted suicide and somebody said, Black women don't do that. Like, we don't do that. Like, wow. And someone else said to me, man, you must be, you must be crazy. You must feel crazy. And I thought, these are among the worst responses that anyone could have regarding their pain. Yeah. And how can I be the light? How can I how can I share my darkness, my pain, but and and at the same time be the light for others? And I needed for people to know these things happened and they do matter. And we're not I don't have a reason to hide or to feel ashamed of the things that were done to me, the people who did them should be living in shame. Yes, and you know this as as you know a, a mental health professional and just the victims that live in shame and silence, the secrecy. It's it's astonishing. Yeah, and yet- always you describe how that happens so well. Mm-hmm. The phenomena of, of being abused as a child, why that creates mm-hmm. secrecy. Yes. Can you expand on that in this conversation, how you understand that? Why, why victims and, and I think victims of any age, but especially children, mm-hmm. wind up holding the shame themselves and feeling so um, trapped in their own secrets? 
think there's a couple of reasons. What what comes to mind for me is probably not not what you would expect in an answer, but I think about that phase of development and 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 the age at which I was abused and and neglected and all of that, and that is our the, our egocentric phase as children, right? And and where we we need safety, we need belonging, we need to know that we're the priority, that things that this is all about me, that 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 I am loved, that I am heard, I am seen, I'm valued. Um, that I'm important to someone, to the people in my life. And so absent of that, what happens is, and then when you add in abuse and neglect and abandonment, then we just internalize this belief that I am not important, that I am not valued, that my body is not respected, my life is not respected or, or, or desired. Uh, no one loves me. Because if if I if I matter to someone, then why would they beat me? Why would they sexually abuse me? Why would they walk out on me? And so, in with the abuse, with the abandonment, with the neglect, it, without even explicitly saying it, the people in our lives are, are saying that to us, and so we internalize that because we're children, right? And we carry that message on into adulthood. And so we don't know how to love ourselves. We don't know how to love other people. If there is a, you know, coming from a faith perspective, we don't understand love in terms of God loving us. Why would this imaginary being love me? I felt dirty. I felt tainted. I felt like trash. Why would God love me? And as children, unless we're told otherwise, we blame ourselves for everything. And I, I, you know, Whitney, as I'm thinking about this, I think of Dr. Maya Angelou who said, we, we don't grow up, we grow older. <laughs> so in a sense, that inner child is always at play. And we know that to be true, right? You know, that inner child is always there. Oh, yeah. So carrying that message so I carried that message of my four-year-old self, my six-year-old self, my eight-year-old self, that I didn't matter and that my body didn't belong to me, mm. that it can be abused. And so now when we, when we think about like, okay, how, how do we change this narrative within ourselves? The truth is, is that my body does belong to me, regardless of what happened to it at an early age. It's mine and should have been respected, mm. should have been left alone, should have been loved, protected. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what comes to mind regarding that. Yeah, I, I often think about how in some ways it's likely more terrifying to a child to believe something's wrong with the adults taking care of them. It's that would be more frightening in a way. If the problem is you, at least there's maybe some illusion of control or perhaps you can manage, change, predict, uh, do things a certain way to divert certain patterns. Um, and, and, especially, you know, when I think about stories like yours, which will stay with me for the rest of my life. Yeah. 
I, I, I said this to my family this morning when I was talking about you and your book. I, I said, this, this Tasha story will stay with me for the rest of my life. It is a story I will carry forever. Um, and, and when your own flesh and blood, you know, the mm -hmm. people that made you, in your case, mm -hmm. fought to mm -hmm. have you, keep you. Yeah. Then dishonor, disrespect, you know, mm -hmm. spiritually and psychologically dismember. Yes. You know, these, these are kind of the, the, it almost feels like the, the question at the center of a, of a child in that situation would be like, if this person, if this person can't love me, this is who I come from. Yeah. Yeah. Who possibly can? Mm hmm Yeah. So, so it, as you were talking, I, I'm like, oh man, my heart, you got my heart, Whitney. I remember, you know, when I was going through the, the writing process and this thought came to mind and I don't know if I wrote it in my book or not, because I haven't read my book since I published it, but, but I remember thinking, but you wanted me, right? You literally chose to have me. Mm -hmm. My last name was my quote unquote father's last. You gave me your name. My mother, you, get, you chose to bring me into this world. You fought for me in court. You had opportunities to say, no, I don't want her. Yeah. How did you choose to have a child? Choose to raise that child and do anything less than love and protect them? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I am a mother. I, I don't know how to answer that question other than profound yeah. mental illness and trauma. In your book, when you when you talk about being in the Air Force and your your mother sending all those harassing letters to everyone there, yeah, and these women, um, you know, your supervisors asking this question: How could a mother do this? Yes, yes. And and this is what I was thinking nearly every page of your book: How could a mother do this? How could a mother do this? How could a mother do this? And yet the way you describe that moment is finding that question somewhat bewildering at the time. Mm -hmm. Like it was so clear to these healthy, appropriate women mm -hmm. that what had happened to you was, I don't have a great word for it. It almost like a violation against nature. It was so bizarre. And, and so as I stood in my commander's office at the time, and, and, and we're, we're, we're standing there all together, they valid, validated me just so beautifully 
because it had not really occurred to me at that level that, yeah, you're right. How could a mother, how could a mother do this? Why would a mother do this? Sending these letters over and over and over. And these are people, mind you, that I spent, when you're in the military, you spend the majority of your day with your military family more than you do your actual family. So, so th these are people that knew me more than my biological mother ever would. And, and, and what they, what it just, it was this aha moment of, there are people in this world who know how to love, who know how to protect, who know how to mother. And so I didn't have to, even though I always wanted my childhood to be a secret, you know, especially at that time, I don't have a reason going back to the shame part of it. I don't have a reason to be ashamed. I did nothing wrong. Yep. So they validated that in that moment. And there was such, I mean, again, love and protection. We've got you. Yeah. These are people that work with me day in and day out. And 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 they were mothers. They were mothers. Mm -hmm. We would never do this to our children. Why would a woman do this? Why would a mother do all of these things? And they didn't even know the half of, I never told them all the things that I experienced. Wow. So... Yeah, they they spoke life to me, into me in ways that they will never know it. Yeah, I felt that reading. Yeah. And in a way, it felt like because, because they prayed, because they stayed yeah. with you in that moment, you were, you were kind of able to make this turn. Yeah, I was. It, it reminds me of, I remember when I was a, a little girl, and I have not talked about this on anybody else's podcast, I don't think. But, but I remember being a, a little girl and just kind of imagining that God's most powerful angel was protecting me, mm -hmm. that there was this ginormous, <laughs> magnificent angel just kind of spreading their wings mm. and just shielding me from everything, from the worst possible harm that that angel was there mm. just to say I'm with you I'm with you I, I, I can't take you out of it necessarily but I've got you wow. and so in that moment that was God's wings mm -hmm. in military form <laughs> I can't take the pain away from you but we've got you mm -hmm. all these letters <laughs> All this stuff that she sent, we don't care because we got you. Yeah. What do you need from us? What can we do? How can I support you? And that decreased the trauma of what I had been experiencing with what I can only call terrorism. That's what it felt like for me was terrorism. The constant calls the harassment, the letters, it felt like terrorism. It was terrorism for me. And, and, and 
them just being there and showing up in that way. The trauma that could have happened, and I don't know that I could have come out of it if it wasn't for that. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. I also saw something in your book that I thought was like a, a theme throughout that um, you didn't, you, you made explicit a couple times you, you spoke to it directly, but the, how important it is to pay attention, ask kids questions, notice how they're behaving. Yes. Get curious about what might be going on at home. Yes. You are in a position where mm -hmm. you interact with children, school, mm -hmm. church, you know, hospital, whatever, that, that there's a, an incredibly, it's a, it's a really vital kind of gatekeeping role that you have mm -hmm. in a way. And it, there were so many times where I think your life could have been radically changed. Yes. Had somebody asked some questions. Yeah. Dug around followed through yeah you know there's there it did seem like there were some really important angels mm -hmm. in your life from the beginning mm -hmm. your grandmother mm -hmm. what was the woman's name beth no pam pam mm -hmm. you know? yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> pam and yet they kind of couldn't move it across the home plate or whatever. I don't know. I terrible yes. words. <laughs> yes. No, here's how I understand my, my past and the people in my life who were in their own ways, angels. I see them differently now that I'm on the other side of things. Mm. At the time they were my angels. They're all I had, but here's what I think about. When you love someone, how far are you willing to go to protect them? And, and no one in my life was willing to cross the line, to really go there, to be inconvenienced. Yeah. And, and they, they say it to me, and I believe them, and I know that it's true, that they felt like if they intervened, that my life, that things would be made worse for me. Well, what is worse? As a therapist, I'm asking now, what is worse? Is it that she would kill me? Is it that she would continue beating me? And if that is the case, and if that is what you really fear, why aren't you making sure that I'm not in, in that environment? Uh, exactly. Exactly. Yes. I, you know, I, I put myself in Pam's shoes in that yeah. part because I thought, why is this woman on the phone? Offering yeah. all this love and care and counsel and not just saying, okay, time for me to go to the police. Yes. Stand, you know, stand there at the front door and get this child out of this home. Yes. And I, I don't know the answer. I don't know if Pam was disempowered in her life in other ways or, or you know, I, I don't know. Um, yeah. 
I have kind of a I will storm the gates of hell kind of vibe to my <laughs> personality when I when I feel love and protection towards someone. Um, and I have resources. That's all right. So I don't, you know, I did have this complicated compassion for your grandmother who didn't have resources. Right. And 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 her children, my my grandmother, her children were not without their own experiences. Mm. Yeah. And and I don't really know fully her story either. Yeah. But certainly a woman who did not feel empowered in a lot of ways. Yeah. Who was very limited in terms of her ability to help. Um, and just, I would even say in terms of cognition, just being able to, you know, just yeah, really, you know, come to, okay, what can I do? What are, what are my options? And for her, that was prayer. Yeah. And, and that's powerful, right? That's, that's something, that's something. So I think she, she did what she thought she could do. She lived, in my opinion, a, a life in which she was not empowered in a lot of ways. No, that was clear. Yeah. And I yeah. imagine that poverty and racial yes. oppression and yes. fear mm -hmm. played mm -hmm. a huge role in all of that. Mm -hmm. Lack of, lack of education. Uh, and just again, that that gener you spoke it, the generational poverty um, never worked like an actual job outside of the home, and um, I I cannot for myself even imagine that life of being in the house nope. with twelve children and and just that that reality. But that was reality for her. And I think her reality is what shapes and continues to shape my own life choices <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and wanting to make sure that I speak out, speak up, advocate for as much as possible. I know what it's like for people to sit on the sidelines watching the things happen, yeah. talking about it, but not helping. Yeah. And I want to make sure that in the lives of my clients, in my community, in my my now, my current family, that I am not that person. Yeah. Yeah. I I have a client who had a teacher in high school who, um, you know, this client of mine, um, I'm going to leave out gender. Or sure, sure. Mm -hmm. um, they were they acted out a lot in school and mm -hmm. had a hard time learning which is something mm -hmm. you describe in your book consequence of mm -hmm. um and this teacher instead of most of the administrators and teachers all around this client of mine um had wanted to punish create consequences entertain expulsion or suspension from school and and this teacher or maybe it was even the assistant principal said 
know there's something amiss here. This child needs someone to believe in them. Mm -hmm. And worked in a mentoring role and changed the course of their mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. This person now is a teacher. Mm. Yeah. And I know this person as a gentle, curious, compassionate, sensitive person. The mm-hmm. way they described their past to me, it sounded like they were aggressive and um, mm-hmm. rude and defensive mm-hmm. and and even kind of violent. And it's such a huge mistake, I think, in these systems where we work with children to see, you know, quote unquote, bad behavior as a problem with the child. You know, no child grows up in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. Um, And to me, I think probably like 100% of the time, Maybe 99. A misbehaving child is a discouraged, like profoundly discouraged child. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, When I worked with, when I did school therapy, I would often tell teachers and administrators and parents that the child, your child is speaking, but you're not understanding their language. They're trying to tell you something. And I think about the students. I think about, first of all, myself and how I would fall asleep in class. I felt very safe at my desk, surrounded by students, and I would just knock out as soon as I got to class. And I'd go from one class to the other. I mean, elementary school to high school. And sometimes all I could do was sleep because at home I had to be hyper vigilant. Mm-hmm. At home, I worried. At home, I stressed. At home, I was not loved, celebrated, protected. I couldn't sleep at night. I just didn't know from day to day what kind of verbal or physical abuse, like what would happen to my body. How might I be punished today? What name would I be called? What, you know, what, what, what would I do to incur my mother's wrath? And so at home, there was no rest for me. And there wasn't just no love or or any protection. And at school, I felt better protected, but I couldn't focus. And had, you know, you you had mentioned earlier, if an adult had asked the question, I would have loved for some teachers. And all it would have taken is one to ask, are you okay? Mm -hmm. Why are you sleeping so much? What's wrong? what's happening. Um, and, and I was not academically, I I just failed a lot. It would have only taken one teacher to really care and and to just really ask, tell me who hurt you. Right. What's, what's happening? Speak to my heart. Often in, 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 in these roles, (laughs) these jobs, whether it's hospitals, schools, churches, we get so wrapped up into the role of this is where I work, this is the job I do, that we don't take time to meet people heart to heart. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
can I care about you <laughs> and, and forego the, you know, I know I have my task. I, I have the, my list of to-do items, but can I stop just for a second to show you some love? Mm -hmm. Really see how are you doing? It would have only taken one person. I would have told the whole thing. I would have said, this is what is happening for me. Yeah. I can't concentrate on math, English, and science because I am afraid. I can't concentrate because home, home is not safe. <laughs> I don't, I don't look forward to going home each day. Most kids do. It's like, whoo, run into the school bus. Yeah. <laughs> running down the street, you know, to get home. Not me. That was a very lonely, slow walk. Mm -hmm. So it's taught me to take time. Really ask questions, even of my daughter, like, really, like, are you okay? Is, is everything okay? Mm -hmm. Pay attention. Mm -hmm. How old was your daughter when you met her? Well, I met her when she was like one and a half. Mm. And me and her dad and I, we, we got married when she was about six years old. And now she's getting ready to turn 21. So you have been her mom. Yeah. For one of her moms. One of her moms, right? One yeah. of her moms for a long mm -hmm. time. Yeah. What has that felt like to do it so differently? It's been scary. Mm -hmm. It has, at times, I've felt really lost. How do you love children when you've not been loved yourself? And I didn't have an example of what does healthy parenting look like? And so what guided me with her and still continues to guide me is how do I practice not doing any harm? Mm -hmm. And loving her means that, that when I mess it up, when I judge or when I make her feel, when I hurt her feelings, or even as I recall her early childhood days, and mistakes I made. Is it okay to name that thing, that offense, take accountability, responsibility for what I did, and then change my behavior? Amen. Yeah. So for me, it's literally practicing how do I not do harm? Um, and then how do I equip her and, and make sure that she understands that she was born with autonomy over her body. I'm not going to do anything to her body and nobody else should do anything to you know her body. Having these conversations about consent, about sex, about love, all the things, making sure that there, you know, there have been moments where adults have been really irresponsible and, and really kind of reckless. People in her, like teachers and coaches, making sure that that we fight for her because this is what love looks like. You say something to my kid, you do something to my kid. 
I'm protecting her. She's, she, she's mine. She belongs to me. Right. And, and this is what love looks like. Oh yeah. I, that's a yeah. feeling I am intimately familiar with. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, and, and, and maybe because I, I feel very connected in my own history to needing that mm -hmm. to yeah. when I, when I was reading your book, I thought, Oh, how, like, how lucky is your daughter? Because you are going to be sensitive to things that a lot of other parents wouldn't think to be sensitive about. Right. Right. The, I kind of like to use this example. I have known other parents who were like, well, you know, I don't let my kids do sleepovers. I don't let them stay at other people's houses because, you know, what if something happens and you don't know what other families believe in or what they're practicing in their home or, you know, any, I want to keep my kids from being harmed. But when we look at the statistics of sexual abuse, physical abuse, verbal abuse, all abuse, you know, with children, there's something like 90% or something like that where it happens in the home, in close proximity, it's 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 the, the people you know that that you trust the most, right? But most of the abuse, it's it's something close to like ninety percent, um, and it, that it's happening in the home by brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. And so, a part of parenting her meant that I can trust the neighbor. <laughs> that when her classmates invite her to the birthday party, to the sleepovers, to the whatevers, if they're going out of town and then they're going to have a good time at the beach or something, sweetheart, yes, go have a good time. And I can say that, that, that it, what, what it did is every time she would come home, did anybody do anything? You know, are you okay? Did anybody try anything? And I've asked her that over and over throughout her life. And the answer has always been no. Mom, if that ever happened, you know, I would tell you, you know, you and dad and I would do this. And, and she just knew I'm safe. Like if anybody ever even tried anything, they'd be sorry. <laughs> right. But, but I didn't shield her from hanging out, go to the birthday party, go to the pool party, whatever, have your fun with your friends. Mm -hmm. And that allowed her to not share this trauma story, this trauma narrative that, that I had, yeah. she has her own life experiences, but she got to grow up feeling protected. Yeah. I wanted that for her. And to just know that, that if you ever allege or, you know, report that somebody has done something to you, I believe you every time. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, I was really little. I don't know how old, but it, I mean, I, I don't ever remember not knowing that uh -huh. my, my parents both worked, um, they're retired now, but they worked in pediatric medicine. Um, uh -huh. and very early I, I was told if anyone touches you uh -huh. in these ways, that is wrong. Uh -huh. Nobody should ask to see or look or touch these parts of your bodies and, you know, unless it's um, a doctor at a checkup, 
Yeah. And will be in the room. Yeah. Or, you know, if you need help with something like cleaning or the bath or what, right, you know, mm. and then you can talk to, you know, your parents or your grandparents or whatever. And mm. that's it. And um, so I've given my daughter, who is six, the same speech. Um, yes. And as a therapist, I work primarily with adults, sometimes teenagers, but rarely. Mm -hmm. um, I talk to a lot of people who their, their bodies were touched or mishandled or mistreated or abused or violated, and they didn't know what was happening, mm -hmm. which is mm -hmm. a lot of what you described too. No one yes. said, this belongs to you. Nobody should touch it. You let me know if something happens. Yes. And it's one of the reasons the experience is so bewildering and shameful and secret. Mm -hmm. Because all the feelings are confusing and shameful and disorienting. Mm -hmm. um, so what you just said about asking your daughter, like, did anything happen? Were you, are you okay? Yeah. Is, is such a vital piece of, of good enough parenting where you are checking in on them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Not assuming that they're just going to tell you everything, but really being curious, asking, wanting to communicate that you are there to help, to protect, to be a safe place. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Having these conversations were really important. Um, you know, when she was little and she, she'd take her, her, her little bubble bath, you know, and all of that, and she'd have her fun. Um, and, and I would just be in the bathroom with her and, and I would say, you know, well, these are your breasts and this is your, your little bottom. That's your, that's your butt. And, and then, you know, that, that little area down there between your legs, that's your vagina. And, and, and those are, you know, your most private places. But if anybody tries to make you touch them in those same areas, if they do anything or, or try to touch you or even touch you anywhere else on your body, on your side, on your leg, and you don't like it, it's okay to say, don't touch me there. Stop. Yeah. No. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that, I mean, it was just so important to keep that message, you know, and, and so I feel like in a lot of ways now, if she ever decides that she wants to have children, then she can deliver that same message. And again, then a new generation will come up and they will be untouched by any kind of abuse. Yeah. It was really important. And no one in my whole life had that conversation with me. And, and I don't want to share or even try to think about my brother's story, but I do wonder, just based off of my experience as a therapist and social worker, who hurt him? Absolutely. Who made him touch their body? Who violated his body? Mm -hmm. I, I don't know his story, but... But I just wonder who, and I, and I talk about that in my book, I can't stop thinking about it out. And I wonder who hurt him in order for him to hurt me. Because in that moment, I don't know that he registered 
this is abuse. He was very young. I was very young. Mm -hmm. And his big 12-year-old body on my eight-year-old body. I, I don't know that it registered. I'm doing something really bad to my sister. Yeah. She's my sister. Yeah. And so yep. anyhow, um, just my experiences, it really does shape. I, and I think because of the work we do, right, mm -hmm. it, it really changes how I look at other people, abusers. Yep. I, I now see abusers as there, there isn't a person that abuses that hasn't also been abused. Mm -mm. It's cyclical. It's generational. Yep. And, and even if it, it's outside of the family, no, maybe I'm wrong, but but I feel like in my experience, every person that I know that is an abuser, they also experienced abuse by someone in their life. Yep. So I'm not overly concerned about my brother's story. I'm I'm really not. Yeah. But the question is 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 there, and we needed we both needed a safe adult. Mm -hmm. To just say this, this is what abuse looks like. This is what consent looks like. Your body belongs to you. If anybody touches you in these areas, does anything to you, tries to make you do things to them. Um, yeah, re report it. Tell someone. I want for you to describe maybe for anyone who could possibly relate to this experience how you felt about yourself when you were young, what you believed about yourself. Mm -hmm. And then I want you to tell us what you believe about yourself now. Oh, I've never been asked this question. And even you saying it, I, I got chills in my body for some reason. Mm -hmm. Just thinking about that, that polarization. When I was a little girl, I felt ugly. I felt dumb felt unimportant. I felt unloved. I felt like my life was just wait, like a waste. Like there was just no point that God made a huge mistake in creating me. Or that I was somehow paying the price for somebody else's sins or something, but that I was being punished. I was born to be punished, to be abused. The abuse was my punishment. And now as a almost 42 year old woman, I feel profoundly loved and protected. I have people in my life, so many people, who would go to bat for me if they needed to, you know, I, I, I have people that have known me for so long, for 20 plus years. Even as I think about high school, people that knew me in high school, people that, that just know me, I feel beautiful. I know I'm intelligent. I know my worth, that my life is valued, that my voice is important. That when I speak, that I speak with power, that I speak with authority, that my words heal, 
that my words inspire, that my words encourage. I know that people are changed just by having known me or been around me because that's what they tell me. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I feel changed having read your book. Yeah. I also, Thank you. Yeah. I also felt connected and inspired having only really observed you online. Yeah. Because of what you just said about your voice and your words and your truth. Mm. And uh, that um, there's, there's a really obvious kind of quality of love in what you say and do. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you that because, and again, I don't, I don't know the stories of people who might listen to this. Um, yeah. But in case there's even one person that yeah. can relate to how you used to feel about yourself. Yeah. I, I just wanted them to hear you say it could get better. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it can get better, but getting better, it's also intentional and you have to want it to get better. You have to believe that you can have love and you can have safety and you can have people in your life that, again, that know how to love you well, that, that do no harm. Mm -hmm. You can have people who celebrate you. Mm -hmm. Although my life was not celebrated and I didn't get to celebrate birthdays and special moments as a child, I have people in my life now who can't wait to celebrate with me <laughs> and who are saying, come visit me. Come. No, no, no. Why are you going there? Come here. And me having to figure out my schedule and when I'm going to go where and do what. And, and my life is full. And so if you're out there and you're listening, I want you to know that if a parent or other adult ever touched you inappropriately, sexually abused you, if you were ever sexually assaulted, if, if you were ever verbally abused, emotionally abused, neglected, abandoned by people who should have loved you, I want you to know that in this big old world, there are people who know how to love you and who will love you. Yes. Yeah. Yes. When you say it's intentional, and maybe this, yeah. this is my last question. Yeah. What do you what? What do you want people to know when you say it's intentional? What does that mean? What does it mean to be intentional about your own healing? What does that look like? This is what it looks like. <laughs> When trauma happens and when depression happens and when anxiety happens, I, I, I said this to someone else recently, that to me, anxiety is kind of like telling a story. Trauma tells a story. Depression tells a story. And, and we've got to come to the understanding of, okay, some of that's not, not really true. So if depression and anxiety and PTSD is telling me I'm not worth I'm not worth anything. Nobody loves me. Nobody cares about me. That was my story that nobody loved me. Nobody cared about me. Here's what intentionality looks like. I question that. Where does that belief come from? Who said that? 
or who treated me in that way? So I'm not just getting real cozy with this belief system that ruminates in my mind. Intentionality looks like I'm, I'm questioning it and I'm saying, no, I am important. And, and, and if that's a thing that's, that's in my head, if that tape recorder is running in my head, am I willing to create a new story? Am I will, willing to do the work to manifest bigger, better things for myself? What kind of energy am I willing to bring in to welcome into my life? It's all intentional and it requires work and it requires oftentimes getting help from a professional that can sit with you in your pain and help guide you through that healing process. And maybe where you're not experienced at questioning those belief systems, those stories that trauma and anxiety and depression create, a professional can do that really well with you. You know, that's, that is what we do and say, well, no, you know, where does that come from? Yeah told you that or who you know how old were you when you first started believing that Mm -hmm. and just guiding you on that journey where at some point you're able to see oh those aren't my words that's the words of my father Mm -hmm. of my grandmother of a coach of my mother of or, or of a sibling or a classmate those aren't even my words really who am I um but it's an intentional act. You have to make the decision to want to be better. And what are you willing to do? Mm. And as it relates to my work, Whitney, I often tell clients during their intake, I only work with people who are at the point where they're saying, I will do anything to get help. Mm. Because when you're committed to your own healing, the, the, I mean, it, it just, it, over time, you're able to see, oh my goodness, I'm doing the work yeah. and I can do this. But if you're committed to being in that stuck point, well, I can't help you. Mm-hmm. Oh, if yeah. you're, co- you know, if you're committed to thinking that you're dumb, that your life doesn't matter, then what are we doing? I can't, I, we're wasting our time. Yes. Yeah. That, that's a hard, true thing you just said. It is, it is true. People can be devoted to their beliefs about themselves, their negative beliefs, like a religious devotion. Yeah. Yeah. Healing is scary. And and some people aren't willing to even approach what does true healing look like? Mm -hmm. What does it even feel like to be healed? I don't know what that means. They they really are married to their, their trauma story. Yep. Oh, well, I got married to my healing. And, yeah. and that's all, you know? Yes. Uh, so it does have to be intentional every, every day intentionality. Yeah. I don't know if I've ever heard anyone say that before the way you just said it. And I think that it is one of the more critical aspects to getting better. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To moving toward wholeness. You have to want it. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Um, and, and my question is always, what are you willing to do to get better? Mm. I only want to work with people who are absolutely committed to the healing journey, to a more compassionate journey. Yeah. And I'm okay with teaching them how to have compassion for themselves, to have forgiveness for themselves, but you have to want it. Mm-hmm. And I have had clients say, you know what? I'm not ready. 
Mm-hmm. Me too. I'm not ready to let go of, of that belief. I, I still believe it. I still want to believe whatever that, that it is for them, that really damaging story is for them. Some people do tell me that and that's okay. Yep. Yeah. I mean, a positive identity crisis is still an identity crisis. Yes. (laughs) And so it can feel really dysregulating. It can. Yeah. For a while. And then it, it eases up Mm -hmm. and it's calm. Mm -hmm. It's peaceful. It's beautiful. And you're able to welcome in the light. What is one thing that you wish everyone knew? I watched Mary J. Blige's documentary a couple of weeks ago. And there's a, there's a quote she says, I didn't know I was me. And I thought, that is so cute and so true. When I was a kid, I didn't know I was me, like the me I am today. Mm. And so for people listening, sometimes you don't know that you're you, that you're powerful, that you're, that you're loved, that you're worthy, mm-hmm. that there's purpose in your soul. There's purpose that, that resides there. Mm-hmm. I understand that, Mm -hmm. but it's worth the journey if you allow someone to help you meet the real you that you were always supposed to be. I have loved meeting the real you. Oh, thank you. So glad you were willing to do anything it took to get here. Yes. Mm -hmm. Because you in the world is a gift to me. Mm, Thank you. I mean that so sincerely. And if I feel that way, I cannot imagine how many more people feel that way. That means a lot, Whitney. Thank you so much. I am so grateful to Tasha for sharing her story and her wisdom with all of us today. You can find everything Tasha is up to on her website, TashaHunterAuthor.com, and you can follow her on Instagram at TashaHunterLCSW. The Hidden World is produced by David Gomez. Our theme song is written by David Gomez, and I'm your host, Whitney Logan. Be good to yourselves and each other.